0: Hi, this is Michelle Specht. I play Dr. Elise McKenna on Star Trek Continues. Oh my
1: God, I'm totally fangirling right now because I just met Dan Davidson and Bill Smith of the Trek Geeks podcast. Oh my gosh,
0: they are amazing.
2: This little show, this side of the Alpha Quadrant, your independent Star Trek podcast. Welcome everyone to Trek Geeks. I'm your co-host Bill Smith, and this is episode number ninety-six. Getting really close to one hundred, and we're just super thrilled to do this every week. And thank you all so much for downloading. Joining me, as he does this time every episode, is my illustrious co-host. You know, I would blow up the planet he was on just to change the course of the ribbon and enter the nexus. He's the largely expendable Dan Davidson And buddy, my idea of joy doesn't involve a 19th century Christmas It involves you being silent Welcome aboard!
1: Well thanks, I appreciate it Thanks for uh, that great introduction But how do you know that your version of the Nexus There aren't going to be tons of me everywhere Just like well, 20 or 30 of me
2: Because it's my joy <laughs> <laughs> And that would be my level of hell So
1: <laughs> Ninth circle
2: yeah, and that's uh, episode ninety six, buddy.
1: Nine or six? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. We got uh, some special discussion to to, to do today. We're a- going to
2: talk about <laughs> a. We're going to talk about one of your favorite films, Dan. And of course, again this week we have a special guest geek for the full hour.
1: Oh, I love the full hour. Yes, uh, we uh, had the pleasure of meeting tonight's special geek guest. Uh, last year at STLV, we had some great discussion with him at lunch with our good friend Andy Farber, who does uh, some of the music for Star Trek Continues. Um, and recently, this past week, I was actually honored to be on his show, Melodic Treks, over on Trek FM to discuss the Doomsday Machine, and we had a great time. He is Mr. Brandon Shea Mutella, and uh, we're thrilled you could join us here tonight, man, to talk some Star Trek Generations. Yeah, best TNG movie ever. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> best TNG movie ever. I'm so, you're breaking up, sir. I'm sorry, I'm a, I can't. I'm, ha-
2: I'm afraid that's what he really said, Dan. Um, <laughs> that's not, uh, that's not a, a bad transmission in the audio. He said it's the best TNG movie ever.
0: Yeah. Okay. You know, this? I rank this up there, like, r- r- right next to the alternative factor for favorites for me. And, you know, people think I'm joking, but I love the alternative factor.
1: Are you talking no. about Generations or the Trek Geeks podcast?
0: Both. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, generations was way better than the Trek Geeks podcast. Oh, wow.
2: Oh, uh, words weren't meant to hurt, B.J. <laughs> 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 so, Brandon, tell us a little bit about melodic tracks. You know, you talk about a lot of music on that show. And um, why don't you bring us up to speed, you know, and uh, tell us all about it.
0: Uh, well, Melodic Treks is a, a podcast, and it's all about the music of Star Trek. And I, once in a while, I'll go outside of Star Trek and I'll do a focus episode on a movie or something that a composer who has composed for star Trek has done outside of the star Trek universe. Uh, I had a great episode earlier this January with, uh, John Takis and we did a deep dive into one of Jerry Goldsmith's, I think underrated scores for a movie called the Mephisto Waltz. And we even looked at, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I had, uh, I had my friend Tom from the, uh, from the twilight zone podcast on and we talked about a couple of twilight zone episodes that he did but i've had a lot of great interviews with some composers on there i've interviewed jay chataway uh i've interviewed a bunch of people who have produced the soundtrack releases for la la land records and entrada um i did an interview with andy farber Uh, who did music for star Trek continues. Uh, so I've had a lot of, a lot of great things happening with that show. A lot of great interviews. I've been very, very fortunate. Um, and I even got to do an interview with Gerald freed, who is the only surviving composer, uh, from the original star Trek series. And he did, he's got his career started out working with Stanley Kubrick. So that was a pretty awesome interview.
2: That's pretty amazing. You've, you've had some great shows over there, and we're big fans of, of yours, and we're excited that you're here tonight to talk Generations with us, even though we're going to talk about Generations. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, speaking of people talking to us, why don't you let everyone know how they can get in touch with us?
1: Absolutely. As always, on Twitter, Facebook, Skype, and Instagram, our handle is TrekGeeks. You can also send us an email at podcast at trekgeeks.com or call us at 508-784-1701 and leave us a voicemail. Or go online to speakpipe.com slash geeks and leave us a voicemail there as well. As always, you can also join our official Facebook group, Camp Kittimer. Uh, lots of great discussion, lots of great new people joining on a weekly basis. And hey, you're going to get early access to the Trek Geeks podcast just for being a member. No purchase necessary, as they say. Uh, to join the group, just go over to facebook.com slash groups slash campkittimer. And our wonderful admins, Heather, Jackie, or Dan, will let you write in and you can join in on all the fun. But, Bill, I got to tell you, you yes. know it. I know it. Bichet knows it. If you're going to say anything, we're going to use it. So you just watch yourself.
2: Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. That escalated quickly. Dropping the hammer. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you very much for dropping that info on us.
0: I really appreciate it. <laughs> and, Dan, I just wanted to say there, very good, Captain. Brought a tear to me, eye.
1: Wow. Wow. <laughs> we got more impersonators now. I know.
2: Brandon, do you do any more impersonations?
0: Um, I do an impersonation of William Shatner, not doing a very good William Shatner. Hi, I'm William Shatner.
2: <laughs> that was excellent. That was phenomenal. And with that, we will transition to the news. Gents, it's time for the news from treknews.net. Was that Peter Brady doing the agency <laughs> thing? It's time I, to change. I, it is time to, time to rearrange. sha na 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 now. na 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 Dan, uh, of course, the news from treknews.net, brought to you by our good friends at treknews.net. And did you know, sir, that they are online? At tracknews.net, go figure. Uh-huh. Dan, up first, the latest update on the DS9 doc, what we left behind. And it doesn't look like they're leaving anything behind.
1: They are leaving nothing behind, Bill. Uh, it is just amazing. Uh, the $500,000 goal was achieved on Tuesday evening, March 6th, at around 9 p.m. Eastern time, a full five days before the fundraising ended. And that is just Phenomenal when you think they were only asking for 150 initially. And then they went through all of their stretch goals in record time and they have surpassed $530,000 as we we record this evening. So, uh, that final stretch goal has been achieved. And as a result, uh, the folks uh, on the documentary will be working with CBS to bring us some high definition scenes from our favorite series and, uh, names like Mike and Denise Akuda. And VFX master Doug Drexler, among others, are reportedly going to be working on that special stretch goal. So that is pretty awesome.
2: That really is awesome. It makes me wonder what they're going to do as far as as selecting scenes. It makes me wonder what they're going to do about music. Um, it seems like music is going to come up a lot of this podcast. It's yeah. a good thing you're here, Brandon. <laughs> um, uh, how does where does Deep Space Nine rank for you? Um, I, you know, I know you love some original series. I know you love some Generations.
0: Are you a big Deep Space Nine fan? Deep Space Nine's our favorite Trek series. Uh, ah, yeah. that's very good.
2: You're a you're a gentleman of taste.
0: Yeah, Tos is right behind <laughs> it, but uh, Deep Space Nine is where it's at, baby.
1: Nice.
2: I we very couldn't nice. agree more. I think it's the same thing for me too. And no one cares what Dan thinks, so we're not even going to ask.
1: Well, him. I'm going to tell you one thing. I think. What's up? Anyway, I'm hoping, and I and as 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 awful as this scene is, I hope the scene where the Defiant gets destroyed is one of the things that gets done in HD. It's amazing to watch that battle scene as it is. Seeing it in HD is just going to be, uh, like mind numbing. That's my wish.
2: Wow, <laughs> Brandon, Brandon, do you have any wishes for the Deep Space Nine doc as far as HD scenes?
0: I just hope that the only HD scenes they don't that they use is not only the clips from Birthright Part One from Next Generation.
2: <laughs> um, I can second that, yes. Um, although I am surprised you don't like that episode,
0: or do you? <laughs> I, I do like the episode. I just hope that they come up with some new clips.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, standard death shot in the beginning of that is really painful. Um, moving on, gents. It looks like. Star Trek Discovery has a new captain, Dan.
1: Oh, boy. They, the news, every time they announce some of these new cast members, it they just seem to go from level to level. And this was a big one. Jason Isaacs has been cast as a captain, and not just any captain. He is going to be captain of the USS Discovery as Captain Lorca. Now, some people may not be familiar with the name. Uh, he's very recognizable, though. Jason Isaacs, you may know him as Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter franchise. Uh, he also played Colonel William Tabington in uh, 2000's The Patriot with Mel Gibson, which is uh, a movie that Bill has uh, a love, a lot of love for. Um, so He is going to be the other major lead, alongside Sonequa Martin-Green uh, when Discovery launches sometime, sometime.
2: <laughs> sometime.
1: <Eventually>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, also in addition to uh, Mr. Isaacs being cast, we are also told that joining the cast as a cadet named Tilly is Mary Wiseman. Uh, she apparently will be a cadet in her final year at the Academy who was assigned to be on board the Discovery. So, that is pretty cool, too. We're going to have some little Wesley Crusher kind of person on the ship.
2: I've got a prediction for her right off the bat. And my prediction is she may as well be wearing a red shirt. (laughs) Wow. Because, I'm sorry, a cadet named Tilly. (laughs) I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. I'm going to leave it there. Um, So in looking at the casting announcement and, and Jason Isaac's character name of Captain Lorca, I'm curious as to whether or not
0: he's going to be human. Thoughts, gentlemen? Brandon,
1: you go ahead first, man.
0: Ooh, I don't know. I mean I guess I was kind of surprised with the announcement. I mean, I, I know he's a good singer, and that song Wicked Game was just outstanding. <laughs> um
2: uh, uh, wrong,
0: wrong Isaac.
2: What? This is the guy who was the bartender on the love boat.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know this guy, I know this guy from a TV show that he was in called Brothers um so that's where oh, I yeah that's so up. yeah it had um oh what's her name from the x-files season nine um drawn a blanket uh, her name annabeth, right? gish. annabeth gish yeah that's right um i don't know if he's gonna be human or not i i gotta say though i was surprised with today's culture and today's society and how we're trying to be inclusive i was surprised to see a white male as the captain when i got the announcement
1: well, you also have to look at it as the lead of the entire series is going to be Sonequa Martin-Green. So I'm right. wondering if that kind of allows that to take place without too much backlash, so to speak. Yeah,
2: I don't well, Plus, you also have to figure that Michelle Yeoh is going to be cast as the right. captain of the Shenzhou. So I wonder if – it makes me wonder how much Jason Isaacs is actually going to be in Discovery. Mm-hmm.
1: What I find interesting, and I'd like to get your guys' take on it, is if we look at all six captains now, and all the people who played them, I think Jason Isaacs is the one that is the most quote unquote famous at the time of their casting. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think you're right about that.
2: I'll, um, yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Bakula might be a close second because he was quantum, Leap. you know, on Quantum Leap, yeah, and, and a variety of other things, but I mean. I, I, Jason Isaacs is one of my favorite actors of all time, partly because of The Patriot. And actually, it's the reason why I like The Patriot because he's just so horribly villainous. Mm-hmm. You know, in one scene, he kills both Rene Aubergenois and Heath Ledger. I mean, you know, how can you go wrong with that? I mean, it's, he's, he's badass. So I, I'm psyched for this casting. I think it's going to be awesome. And I can't wait to see what end Tilly meets, quite frankly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Captain Lorca? It's too soon for this.
2: (laughs) That sounded like Peter Griffin doing Wesley Crusher doing (laughs) Tilly. That was unfortunate. Wow. And then lastly in news, and this one's right up, this one's right up Brandon's alley too. It looks like the Star Trek, the motion picture soundtrack is being released of vinyl.
1: Yeah, that's kind of cool. When's the last time anything was released to vinyl, actually, is, is my question. But, uh, a very special edition of Star Trek, the motion picture, of course, combo- composed and conducted by Jerry Goldsmith, is going to be released. Um, very, very cool looking LP. Uh, there's a great picture of it on TrekNews.net's, uh, site with this article. It is a limited edition. There will only be 1500 units that will be available. It's gonna come with a special 12-page booklet. Uh, and the vinyl, like I said, is going to be colored vinyl. Uh, the picture's really cool. I think this could be something that I would like to get, but the only problem is I don't have anything that I can play it with.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Brandon, uh, have you heard anything about this set on the down low?
0: Uh, I haven't heard anything myself, just what you guys have seen online. Now, I have picked up, Lullaland La has released a few other, uh, vinyl releases, not many. They've released a couple over the last few years. Um, last year, they had a 1701, or sorry, not 1701, uh, Star Trek the original series, uh, record that was shaped like a delta, and it had on one side, it had one version of the main title and on the other side, it was the other side of the uh, another version of the main title. So it was just a single, oh, wow. but it was actually cut in the shape of a Starfleet Delta, which is pretty cool. Uh, they had a wonder woman where it had the main title on two different sides. It was a picture disc. Uh, and they've also released a invasion of the body snatchers uh, original score. Uh, it was on an LP that's green. So it's the same kind of style that you saw of the motion picture release where it's this neat, nebulous looking picture but it was green kind of green and white so uh they've had a few releases up till now and i think they're pretty good quality um it's a this one's a double release though or sorry a double lp so i'm thinking it may be closer to the whole score i don't think they can fit the entirety of it on there but it's going to be pretty close if it's not um so I think it's kind of a neat collector's item. And if you had picked up the, uh, the Star Trek 2 release that Mondo released just a couple of years ago, then it would fit nicely with it. They did one and it was kind of pink and red, like the Mutara Nebula on the vinyl.
1: Oh, nice. Oh,
0: very nice.
1: As I am uh, reading through the article, gentlemen, uh, the total album time, uh, Brandon is 84 minutes and 54 seconds. So it's uh, quite a lot. And as we, uh, will be releasing this podcast on Tuesday, March. 14th. Uh The album will be available at the time that you are all listening to this at 12 noon Pacific time. It will be available at La La Land Records. So uh go buy yourself a double LP super duper Star Trek motion picture album that you can't play on anything if you don't have a record player. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't know where I'm going to put a turntable because uh, I haven't had a receiver in years. So. Of
1: course, now they do have turntables with USB connections so you can put it in your computer. Wow, I never even stopped to think about that.
2: It's a record because I'm old and I'm a funny duddy. Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that like an MP3? Um,
2: It's a uh, it's something that Tom Brady breaks all the time. (laughs) There you go. And uh, and with that, gents, we're going to move on to the main segment and uh, my favorite Star Trek film of all time. and we gathered together today to talk about Star Trek Generations. And I think we first started talking about this in Las Vegas uh, when we were having lunch. And uh, Brandon, you uh, you know especially expressed an interest in talking about it. And We figured we'd save it till a time where we could talk with you. Um I'll be perfectly honest in that I have a hard time being um fair about Star Trek generation simply just because I've developed such a hatred for it since 1994. And I don't think I hated it as much as I did when I first saw it. So that probably takes us into, you know, probably finding out when you guys first saw it, where were you? What did you think? And were there any particular memories from watching the movie that stood out for you? So Brandon, maybe we'll start with you.
0: This was an epic event for me. I had discovered... I, I, I was knee-deep in my Star Trek fandom right at this time. You know, it was late 92, and the episodes that really got me into Star Trek and hooked me right off the bat, I'd watched Shore Leave on a Saturday of the original Star Trek, and later on that week, I started watching Chain of Command Part 1 in its first run, and I was hooked right off the bat. So this is 92. Right after this, Deep Space Nine comes out, you know, Next Generation ends, I'm discovering all the original series, we got a movie coming out we got a new t v show coming out with Voyager, so I am just completely in the deep end of Star Trek at this time, and at this time, I'm living in a small village, well, not a village, a small town in northern Saskatchewan called Larange. There's five thousand people there, and we've got one theater in Larange. I'm thirteen years old. This movie plays. On a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, one showing, that's the only time this movie theater is open, and I go to every single showing of this movie. And I'm, I'm completely hooked and it completely captivates me because it's right at that time in my fandom. I'm 13 years old. I'm in love with Star Trek and I fell in love with this movie. Um, we were talking on, uh, on Facebook Messenger the other day there, uh, Bill, and I was really into movies at this time and I just recently watched A Clockwork Orange and I took this movie very seriously. I'm like, man, you know, Malcolm McDowell's in this. This is some pretty serious stuff. Like this is going to be like Academy Award nominated movies. This is going to be like the best picture of all time. and and like I really took this movie seriously when it came out. I was, and and so that was it. Like it was an event for me. It was the first major motion picture that had a humongous impact on my life.
2: Wow. That's quite the testimonial. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, because I, I mean my story is nowhere near as, as grandiose or exciting. Dan, how about you? Um where did you see uh, generations did you see it opening night? I know you don't typically go opening night and um, and is there anything that stood out about it for you?
1: This is really probably gonna aggravate some people or upset some people and maybe it just is a testament to what I feel about the movie although I don't I don't hate it as much as Bill does. I honestly have not the slightest idea when I saw it, what I was doing anything. I do, I, I've been racking my brain all day because we're looking at our notes for what we're going to talk about tonight, and you pose those questions in the notes, Bill. I have the slightest idea, and I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh I wish I could give more. I do remember that I was very excited that it was going to be a movie which had both crews because that's what we had had up to that point, um, but we'd never seen them together, so we knew that there was going to be a meshing of it. But other than that, I just don't recall where I saw it, if it was opening night. And my initial thoughts on it. It's and, and I apologize, but uh, I'm I'm not going to make stuff up. But that's that's what I got for you,
0: Bill. I just want to say if you if you want to you know co-host this with a fan, you know, like you can give me a call, <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> oh, totally. Well, that's part of the reason why you're here, Brandon, so that uh, Superfan One Seven Zero One over there.
1: <laughs> I got um, plenty of things th- that I love about the movie. I just don't remember what I could, dudes. I don't remember what I was doing this morning when I woke up, so how am I supposed to remember November 1994?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, fair enough. I have hard enough time remembering what I went in the kitchen for 15 minutes ago. Um, Yeah, I have to say, I saw it opening night. I was in a theater in uh, Guilford, New Hampshire. It was the Lakes Region Cinema when it was there. And it was a tiny, tiny theater, and it it was pretty packed. And I recall being really excited because, you know, this was going to be the movie that sort of handed the baton off. And we got into the movie and the opening scene um, in the Enterprise B bridge when Alan Ruck finally steps up and I caused the entire theater to laugh because as soon as he delivered his first line, I'm like, oh my God, it's Cameron! (laughs) And nobody heard what happened next because everybody was howling. Um, But... I I remember there being a lot of anticipation for this movie. I remember there being um, a, a long line to get in. And I remember being kind of disappointed at the end, but I I didn't dislike the movie necessarily. So that's kind of where, where I'm coming from on this. Um, it, it probably makes sense to review some of the key elements. You figure we've got um, Data's emotion chip plays a big part in this movie. And I think at first I was kind of surprised that they actually went to that in this film um, because they hadn't really dealt with it since I don't want to say see, uh, late season six, early season seven. And all of a sudden it added a new depth to data that I don't think i anticipated they were going to introduce to the films. Does that make sense?
1: It, it does make sense. And, and, um, Brandon, I'll be very interested in hearing your take on what you thought about the storyline of the emotion chip. And I know that it had a lot to do with what things that happened in the movie as a result of the emotion chip. I thought it was the biggest mistake of the entire movie. I really honestly do. Nothing else bothers me as much as what they did with the emotion chip and how Data reacted to having it and having it turned on
0: yeah I agree like it's pretty painful watching that Mr. Tricorder scene you know like that's for me that's also the part that's just that's a I squirm in my seat every time I watch it I'm like this is really painful and I don't care what LeVar Burton or whoever wrote this said pushing Crusher into the water is freaking hilarious
2: (laughs) I I agree with you because she falls right by Bloody Knees Wharf it sounds like a pirate name if you notice, you know, when that goes into slow mo and she's falling over the side of the sailing vessel, Wharf's climbing up the side of the ship and his <laughs> knees are totally
0: bloodied.
1: That's hysterical.
2: Yeah. But I have to agree, I think that's absolutely hilarious, quite frankly.
0: Um, I think it's interesting that they decided to do the plot line of the emotion chip, and I think it's wonderful. It's something that you couldn't do in the TV show because the TV show, you need to have a consistency from week to week, and they didn't have quite the character growth and character development that they have in television shows nowadays. So it is – I'm kind of glad that they tried to do that. I just don't think that it worked.
2: Yeah, I think it provided some interesting conflict for data. But I think in some of those scenes, especially the one later with Picard and stellar cartography, uh, something is off with that scene. And I think it's the pacing because there is the opportunity for, you know, a, a great dialogue between them. And Picard is speaking in really hushed tones until he sort of unloads on Data and, and Data is, is really unsure of himself. And I think that maybe architected or staged a little differently with a little bit different pacing, it, it could have been something really special.
1: One thing that I actually liked about that scene, guys, was when Picard does haul off and says, that's an order, Commander! You see Data completely jerk back into his normal Android mode. I thought that was a good part on Brent Spiner's acting part. That that happened, but he was still – he sat down. You could tell he was still nervous. But that is one thing in that scene that I did like is his reaction.
0: There's – I like the scene a lot. It works for me. Just the comedic elements in the movie don't work for me. But the stellar cartography scene does work for me. I compare that one to the scene in, I think it's peak performance, when Data loses the battle against uh, Zack Dorn guy. And he like Mm -hmm. shuts himself down and is like, I'm not on duty anymore because I I failed. I think it's that episode, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. That scene doesn't work for me. You know, and I'm like, oh my goodness, Data. Like, I think that one's over the top, but but in this one, when he's fighting with the emotion chip, it makes more sense to me that he's he's not quite as comfortable with how he's performing.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, I, so so I
0: have to agree with that a hundred
2: percent. Yeah. I um, I think that you know the Zach Dorn scene is a is a really great example of how they dealt with that uncertainty with Data on a much smaller scale, and I, I think it. I think it added something to the character. Whereas I think you're right, Brandon. I think the humor that they tried to add as a result of the emotion chip really took away from the fact that you know he was entering a new level, uh, level in his desire to be more human.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it's it's funny, guys. That you you each have a specific moment with Data's emotion chip that you think is the one that doesn't work the most. Um, The humor, stellar cartography. For me, the part that doesn't work most is his being frozen with fear when they're on the Amagosa uh, station and Geordi uh, is being taken prisoner um, by Dr. Soren, the way that he is unable to move or, or do anything when Riker asks for help. I thought to me that was a little bit too much in terms of what was going on with data. That was the one that got me the most.
2: Yeah. I have to agree with that a hundred percent. Um it- uh, there, there are some definite miscues for Data's character, although I think his journey in this film is an important one mm-hmm. because it, it positions the character for the rest of, of the films. Unfortunately, I mean, they don't really deal with this emotion ship as, as much as perhaps they ought to. You know, in this movie, it's fused to where's neural net, but in insurrection, they find a way to, you know, to make it extractable because he doesn't take it with him to the Baku homeworld.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and in first contact, he can turn it on and off.
2: Right. So I, I think it's it's a thread that I think they let go after this movie, and, and and that really bothers me because there was the potential for such great growth for data there. Yeah, but is right.
0: that a fault of this movie or the other movies?
2: Oh, no, I just think it's a fault in general. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are plenty of other faults for this movie as far as the writing for data goes, but I think the one thing that this movie gets right in this aspect was they they pulled on this thread. And, you know, whether they did it, you know, right or wrong is up for debate. But I think it added depth to data that the character needed after seven years. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, you bet. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: So obviously the Nexus plays a huge factor in this movie. And I have to say, I I still kind of get confused by the concept of the Nexus because you can either be there or you can't. And maybe part of you gets left behind Um, don't you guys give me your thoughts about the nexus in general and, uh, Brandon, I guess we'll start with you.
0: So the nexus for me is kind of another dimension, right? And you go into it and it's almost like a dimension of thought. And that's why you have the ability to control what happens. And because anything that you think of can happen, right? It's just how we perceive it. Then that's why it's so hard to get out of it. And, you know, a lot of people complain about the fact that there's a guy in there to give them, you know, story development that they need. But to me, that makes sense because there's always this level of perception that the Alorians have above and beyond what humans have. I mean, the way that she reacts with Q and Q who, and she puts up her little hands there, right? And even when she sees uh Dr. Soren in... Uh, intent forward in this movie, like she kind of senses that he's there. You know, yesterday's enterprise when Gainan senses that something's off. Like they, the, the have this perception above and beyond what humans can. So it, it makes sense to me that there is something of her left behind, especially when they were ripped out of the Nexus unwillingly. I can buy that. Dale?
1: Um. The Nexus has always been something confusing to me. Um, one of the things I find confusing, and I say this kind of to try to be funny is if it was, if, 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 if when the Nexus was, uh, a if things were adjusted so that the Nexus was coming by Viridian 3 and through Viridian 3, if it wasn't low enough, would they have ever gotten into it? Does that make sense? Uh, yes. It's kind of uh. strange because it looks like it's a finite, length. It doesn't look like it's indefinite and they're all way up high in the mountains in the final scene. So how do they get there? But I guess to me, the Nexus represents a physical version of what people believe heaven to be like, but it gets, you got to go through hell to get there.
2: Interesting. Mm. I I guess I hadn't considered it in that sense. I mean, what Brandon says makes absolute sense to me. And I suppose if I think about it, that kind of makes sense to me too. Um, and I, I have to wonder if it's it's somewhere in the middle or maybe a little column A, a little column B. You know what I mean? Sure. I think one of the things that, that I'm glad this movie does is they introduce more Elorians other than just Gynen. But I wish they added a little more depth to those characters. We know they're a race of listeners, and that's really about it. But apparently they love this Nexus so much that they got a couple of transport ships to go there.
1: Yeah, I actually think that this is a, a misstep on the movie's part. Again, uh, you never know, at least as much as I can recall, you never hear what Gainan's race is called until this movie. And all of a sudden, they're this important race that is trying to do something. And it just seems that it was kind of like thrust on you so fast. No backstory whatsoever. Um, and I just, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't keen on the way that they introduced them as Elorians. We knew they were listeners, like you said, but, um, it just, So happened that they came about here. See, Dan, something that you said
0: there, or sorry, Bill, something that you said there I never got the impression that the Elorians all went to seek this place out. So the perception that I got from the movie is that these two ships are basically all that's left of the Elorians after the Borg have destroyed their homeworld, Right. And maybe something along the lines of Guinan's taking them to Earth because, you know, in Time Zero, one and two, we know that she's been on Earth at some point. That's why they're so close right. to Earth at this time. But somehow, so the ship is going along. The ship gets caught in the nexus and scotty says they're phasing inside in and out of this space-time continuum so because time has no meaning in the nexus they are they have they're on these ships and this is the first time they've encountered the nexus their whole world has been destroyed just now they go in there their initial impression is hey i've created my family again I've created my wife I've created my daughter Yet they're not fully in there Because they're still Partially on the ship The Enterprise B Rips them all out Of the Nexus They've been ex- able To experience We don't know how much Because again Time has no meaning In the Nexus And this is why It imprints this desire Into Dr. Soren And why he wants to go back And why they have So much experience With the Nexus Is because They've been there For an indeterminate amount Of time Because time doesn't exist Wow well, that's,
2: that's almost a, a Janeway like brain cramp. <laughs> that's uh, my head hurts after that one. But, but I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot to that though, Brandon. You know, I I think that maybe the script could have fleshed some of that out a little bit better with the dialogue, especially with Soren, or maybe even with Guinan. Perhaps when she's talking to Picard in her quarters, and you know, there's all those candles, and you think the thing's going to light on fire. <laughs> um, but yeah, second I, I, only to two uh, candles. Oh, right. I know. What is it with with these people and fire on starships? Um, It it makes me wish that maybe this script had gone through a couple more passes before they they decided it was good enough to shoot. Because I think there are some really great science fiction type concepts here, but I I think they pass over some of them simply just to get to some action. You know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm. Brandon, quick question for you. In listening to what you said a moment ago, are you of the belief that this moment with the two transport ships was the first time they had been able to get into the Nexus or that they had been there before and were trying to get back?
0: I believe that this was the first time they encountered the Nexus myself.
1: Interesting. Okay. I've always been on, I've always been of the other side that they, they're trying to find a way back in to the Nexus. That's very interesting. Well, yeah. and if we
2: have these questions, I'm sure plenty of other people do too. Right. Um,
0: I, I think one of the. Well, Sorry, as, I, as I've said, like I love this movie. This is my favorite Next Generation movie, right? I mean, in a nutshell, in my opinion, you've got two to choose from as to which is your best Next Generation movie. It's by no means a perfect <laughs> movie. There are some there are some failings right, in right. the movie, sure. but I just you know I I do love this movie, and the failings don't detract from the movie for me. You know, yes, this could have had a few rewrites. I've heard some wonderful ideas for what they think that Kirk's fantasy should be. You know, like I've I, there's some wonderful fan theorism, like hey. 15 years later, if we wrote this now, this, we would make this even better.
2: Right. Yeah. Because, you know, and and I I suppose we can get into this now a little bit, you know, talking, I was going to save this for things that didn't work, but you brought up Kirk's fantasy and I just, I have no, you know, stake or belief in the fact that that is Kirk's fantasy. Right. Yes. You know, I, I don't understand, why going back to this cabin with Antonia, who we never see is his idea of joy. Yep.
1: Um, yeah. It, because it should, it should have been 1930 New York city with Edith killer.
2: Yes, it absolutely should have been
1: yep.
2: Um or, or, or Raina Kopic or, or somebody else that, that mattered or even Miramani, Miramani, Miramani. <laughs> um, because I think there are some problems with Kirk in that entire scene because I get the sense that settling down for him in retirement is actually his idea of hell.
0: Can, and oh, I'm yeah, gonna object I, to I that. agree with that. I okay, have to ahead. object to that. So first I'm going to tell you what I think the best th- fan theory on this is, right? And I agree okay. that this would have been the perfect one. Rather than having Scotty and Chekhov at the beginning, with Kirk, maybe just have Kirk there alone at the beginning of the enterprise B. And when, when Picard finds Kirk in the Nexus, you find out his ultimate fantasy is being on the bridge one more time and having the entire original series crew with him saving the galaxy time after time. Yeah. Like to me, that would be the ultimate fan service of a movie. Right. Right. But I also kind of disagree in that family life for Kirk would be hell, and if I could take a few minutes here, I want to talk about as well why I think Picard is a family man, and they kind of fit together, and I kind of need to explain Picard first if I could. Yeah. Okay, so... I believe that Picard is a family man. And one thing that frustrates me about fandom is they take these aspects of the characters and are like, Picard said in a counter at Farpoint, he hates kids. Picard hates kids. Dot, dot, dot. So he hates kids. And that's all that matters. Picard hates kids. However, I think that his character growth over the seven seasons, it may not have been intentional, but I think he became a family man. And it started with the best of both worlds when he was abducted by the Borg. Right after that event, where does he go? He goes back to France to recoup to regain his bearings. He spends time with his family and he gets the experience of spending time with his white uh his sister-in-law, his brother and his nephew once again. And that's what draws him back. That's what allows him to deal with what has happened with the Borg. Later on in that season, you get suddenly human where he's placed in this father figure role of dealing with this Human and, you know, trying to work with this human and get him to become a human again. In the end, I think that he makes the right decision, sending him back to his family of these aliens, but it puts him in a father figure role. And so this is really his first example of becoming a father figure next. We have the most important one that really develops Picard as a family man is disaster. And the time that he spends with these kids, we see that he is a good father figure to these kids. And he can handle dealing with kids in a professional manner in a tragic situation. Okay. The next episode after that, and I'm kind of going through them. Where is where we really start to see Picard changing his opinion. And that's the episode New Ground with Worf and Alexander. Okay. Worf is dealing with becoming a father. He's dealing with a life with Alexander. And he's late. He comes to this meeting with Picard and he's late. And he gets that phone call, uh, uh, that communications call in the middle of the meeting with Picard. And Picard's like, that's okay. Go and deal with your son. Can you picture season one Picard doing that? Not at all. I can't. Not at all. So, because but (laughs) he's starting to realize exactly. He's starting to realize what being a family man is. After this, what do we have? We have the inner light. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. in the inner light, he Mm. has this whole other life. I didn't want kids. I didn't want to get married. I ended up getting married. I ended up having kids. I love my daughters to death. I did not want kids. I have three beautiful daughters. If I woke up right now and that was Reem, I would want to have kids. And in that episode, we see him live a life. He is a father. He is a grandfather. He spends time with a daughter. He spends time with his son. He has marriage with this woman, this whole life that he spent with him. And when he wakes up, that affects him. How badly does it affect him? Take a look at the next episode. Lessons. When he shares this with Nella Darren, this is the most important event in his life, and this is why I'm not a Picard and a Crusher shipper, is because he never shared that with Beverly Crusher, but he shared it with Nella Darren. He found somebody that he could love, but he's conflicted. He's a captain, and he's conflicted with his duties. He's conflicted with what he's good at. Okay. The next episode is Journey's End. Look at how important family is to Picard in that he doesn't want to let these Aboriginal people down because of something one of his ancestors did. Okay. So there's another example of family right. being very important right. to him. So this is a general progression of this character and how he's developed into a family man. I don't believe that it was intentional, but with the way that it's gone on, Plus, we have the final episode. I can't remember the name because I always forget it, but there's the one where he thinks that guy is his son because Bach changed his DNA. Right. And he's confronted. Finally, I may have a full grown son. Turns out not to be the case, but again, he's confronted with it again. So to me, now this is the exact same sacrifice that Picard has had. He's starting uh, that, sorry, that Kirk has had. He's starting to realize what he has given up to be one of the best captains in the history of Starfleet, and this whole same thing was in the Paradise Syndrome with with Kirk. Okay, when Kirk lost his memory, fell in love with Mirmani, had a child with Mirmani, he was still Kirk. He didn't remember everything. He remembered some stuff, but he was still Kirk. He was just Kirk without the memories of being who he was. And he fell in love with Miramani. And I really believe that Miramani was the perfect woman for him. And that's when he realized what he's giving up to be a captain when Miramani died. So both of them are family men who are realizing the sacrifice that they have had to make in order to do the jobs that they do and be the great captains that they are.
2: I, I can appreciate all of that. You you, you know you make a, a great case. I just uh, uh, I I have two points. I, I don't think I just don't think Kirk would retire. I just I don't think he's got that in him, and I certainly don't think he'd think that the galaxy owes him one. That's kind of an anathema to Kirk. Um, and then with Picard, I can believe that you know he. You know, his idea of joy would be a family. I have no problem with that. You know, I, I, like you, I've never been a shipper as far as Crusher and Picard. Um, I just, I thought it was odd that his idea of joy looked like 19th century England. I thought that. You know, if it weren't family for Picard, I thought it would be, you know, investigating some ancient civilization and uncovering ruins because we know that's his joy and his passion. Although I can absolutely, you know, see everything you're saying with regard to the whole family aspect.
0: But wouldn't that house be very similar to the house that was in France? I, I know it's not identical, right? I mean, they had a different kid play Rene as well in the in the dream sequence and stuff. But again, to me, that's like his right. nostalgia for the history of the Picard family is what I see in that house.
2: Especially with the clothes, which seem a little 19th century too. Yeah. You know, I, I, if, if it looked a little more like family – I might buy it a little more, but it seemed like just an, an odd choice for the
1: character. Dan, you were uh,
2: trying to chime in there for a second.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say the thing I can, I can, I love the, all of the points that you brought about Picard and how his character developed. And the inner light is the one that does it for me. That's the one that to me shows that he is a family man. And I, I've always loved that episode. Kirk, though, he even says that in this version of his fantasy as we're calling it, he talks about how he was going back to Starfleet. So he didn't like retirement. He wanted to get back on a ship and do something. And I think that's a very critical part. In this, he's saying, Oh, things are going to be different, but he doesn't have the I don't know what the word is. He doesn't have like the It doesn't Exactly. It's, it's not like, it's not like a, you know, I'm going to do this, damn it. And that's it. He's like, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to tell Antonio I love her. That it just doesn't sound as, as strong a Kirk moment as we've seen in, in, in past episodes or movies.
2: Yeah. I have to agree with that. I, um, there are certain things that you expect with Kirk and you know, you expect that he's always going to be at, you know, in, in the center seat to some extent or always, you know, be a Starfleet officer. And it's like you said, Dan, He he's deciding at that moment, or he goes back to that moment because that's when he actually tells Antonio he's going back to Starfleet. Right. You know, what delivers that message better than Katerian eggs and burnt toast? I ask you. And, and a, a horseshoe. And, and a horseshoe, right? <laughs> um, but you figure he never really gets to that moment because then he winds up in the horse barn. Right. So This is
1: not your bedroom.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, if it was, that would be a t- distinct problem.
1: So Kirk's uh, having fantasies about horses.
2: Well, let's Moving not go with
1: theirs. Yeah, when, we- what, what I say, what I mean in when I mean in that, I know what you're thinking, but what I mean in that is to be able to bring the Shatner part of horse raising into the movie was right. done right but at the wrong time.
0: I blame yeah, the I internet for why that. I misunderstood where you were going with that thought.
2: <laughs> I know. I just blame Dan because I
0: know him. <laughs> there you go. Okay. There's one thing in Picard's fantasy that I just don't get, and that's that freaking merry-go-round.
2: Yes. <laughs> what is up with
1: that? In the living room.
2: In the living room. <laughs> Who the hell has a merry-go-round? Well, obviously, Picard does, apparently, in his, in his, his Nexus. But, and, and how does
0: Guinan wind up there?
2: Well, that's how does a she part of her that that's, that's joy.
0: That's that's the part of her that was left behind. And Picard and Guinan have got a connection that we don't even know. Like we've never even scratched the surface right. on. We've seen parts of it, but we don't know how deep this connection goes. Well, so, no,
2: I agree with that. I I get why she's there physically, or at least in 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 Guinan form. I just don't get how she knows that that's Picard's joy, and she should show up there.
0: He told her over wine.
2: The <laughs> <And> candles
0: <laughs> lots of candles
2: <laughs> lots of candles on the merry-go-round um so boys let's let's advance the ball a little bit let's uh let's talk about some things that work for us in general about this film and then we'll talk about some things that don't work so dan you probably have a little bit of a laundry list there what especially about this film works for you
1: I, this is going to sound funny but i i I'm not a fa- we'll get to what doesn't work but I'm going to I'm going to bring it up now. I don't think the special effects are great in this movie for a lot of the scenes. I love the crash sequence on Viridian 3. I think it's phenomenal. I like what they did. I mean, you can tell in some parts that it's miniatures and everything, but it's something that we had not seen to that extent with the saucer section crashing into the into the planet. I thought that was very well done and I thought the whole aspect of being able to exit the nexus at any time and change history basically was kind of cool because we saw the planet get destroyed but then they're back in time and they're able to stop the nexus from uh even getting to um the point that it was prior so i thought that those were two very good elements of the movie um what about you guys There is so much in
0: this movie that works for me. And when people say that the special effects don't work, I think they get hung up on the fact that we've got stock footage of the Klingon ship exploding from Star Trek VI. Yeah. Right? Right. Right. I really think that the special effects in this movie are outstanding. Stellar cartography looks amazing. Oh, that crash that is sequence good, is yes. absolutely outstanding. That scene when the Klingon bird of prey decloaks and comes up to the Armagosa Starship Station, or like that, is an outstanding shot of that ship. And Definitely. I think that the Enterprise D looks beautiful in widescreen. A lot of people don't like it. I love the lighting in this movie. I think it I is just beautiful.
1: Okay. So now I have to jump in. Two things. <laughs> <laughs> Bill knows what I'm going to say. Two I things. Do. I do. I agree with what you're saying to a point in regards to the Enterprise D, Brandon, but – there is a lot of stock footage of the Enterprise-D in this movie also, and I would think for the first generation TNG movie that the ship would be completely over-the-top beautiful in, in what they did. And and some of the scenes, they just didn't do it. Now, the other thing, I think the lighting in this movie, while at times, is great. It drives me nuts and the reason it does is because (laughs) for seven seasons on television we are used to seeing the enterprise a certain way with certain lighting that now maybe it's because it's on television but for whatever reason we've seen it for seven years now all of a sudden it's always dark there's always lots of shadows going on and while it looks beautiful it's not the norm of what we're used to and that that distracted me from the movie, to be quite honest.
2: I do like the, the lighting in the movie. I especially love you know some of the ambient things happening from space, especially the scene in Picard's quarters with Troy. You've got the sun shining in. I think yeah. it's, a, it's a really nice shot, but there are elements throughout the movie that are just too dark on, on board the Enterprise. I love John Alonzo's work in this movie. He's a, you know, a, a director of photography god, as far as I'm concerned. I know uh, Adam Drosin has a lot of love for him. But, you know, I I can, I'm kind of in between. There are some things I really love about the lighting and the look of this movie. And there are other things that just drive me crazy, especially the bridge.
1: See, that's the thing. They look, don't get me wrong, they look great. But it's so different from what we're used to that it's like, why all of a sudden did they not pay their electric bill? I mean, it's just, that's what it seems like. You just brought it up a minute ago, Bill. When they're in the quarters and in, in Captain Picard's quarters, that shot is really, really nice, especially when the explosion takes place in the sun or in the yeah. star. Yeah. That's really cool, but it's not normal for TNG. So that's what I mean by distracting. Cause I'm like, why is the lighting so different? What happened? Why did the bridge? Where, where did all these extra stations come from? <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, um, did you have anything else you liked,
1: Dan? There's a lot of aspects. I love Viridian 3. I think that whole, I think they shot it outside of Las Vegas, if I'm not mistaken. I think that whole environment is. Awesome. The craggy rocks and the, and, and the steep mountains and stuff like that. I really did like that a lot. I thought that was a very good choice for what they were going to do with the, the scenes on Viridian 3. So I did like that a lot as well. And I got to say, although I think the character was weak at times, he was very strong at times. And that was Dr. Soren. And Malcolm McDowell was awesome in that. I, in, in a lot of parts of the movie. There were a couple scenes where it was a little eh, but for the most part, very, very well done. Brandon,
2: I'm going to take the opposite side of the coin with you because I know that we're uh, we're getting on in the hour and we've got to talk about the central questions. Uh, is there anything about Star Trek Generations that you don't like? Are there any aspects that maybe didn't sit as well with you?
0: Really, the only thing that doesn't work for me in this movie is the humor with Data. It's just it's really really painful. But honestly, I don't know. Like this this movie works for me. I the the way that it starts with Kirk, the way that it ends with Kirk, the way that it's this baton passing, I really appreciate what they did with this movie a lot. And yeah, it's Data's humor is the only thing that doesn't work for me. Uh, there's one more thing that I do want to mention that I really like. David Carson's directing on this I think is really good. You know, there's a lot of really cool shots that you haven't seen in the TV show before. You know, like when they come down into engineering and they're kind of focusing on the station, the camera moves up and pans and that woman looks over and you kind of take a shot with her and then it continues to move along there's a lot of neat shots in this movie that i really like as well
2: yeah i have to agree with that too uh, david carson does a really nice job i i think this is his first film perhaps yeah or it's among his first if it's not his first and uh, i thought he was a very solid choice to direct this movie it, it it definitely looks and feels like star trek so i think that the team of him and alonzo and sort of guiding this visually is is really kind of fantastic um Really quickly, I have to ask you about the score, Brandon, because I know a lot of people who hate the score for Star Trek Generations because they think it sounds too TV and they think the theme kind of sounds like Deep Space Nine, which I actually have always thought. But how do you feel about the score as far as Generations goes before we move on to the central questions?
0: I think it's very underrated. Um, it's fun to listen to Dennis McCarthy stretch his legs a bit and get a full orchestra. And it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful theme. The captain's theme that they've got in this, you know, that, dun, 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 dun. you know, like it, it does sound kind of D Space 90, but I mean, you do get that a lot with film composers. I was listening to, um, I believe it was, it was either Poltergeist or The Exorcist, but it was an earlier piece by Goldsmith. And honestly, it sounds exactly like the score to the motion picture. Interesting. You know, and so you get that. A lot of people have those sounds and they tend to use them over and over. And, you know, if you're somebody who's like me, who's really into film scoring, you start to hear those things. Like John Williams, a lot of his stuff sounds very similar. James Horner, a lot of his stuff sounds very similar, you know, and they go through phases, Right. Where there's certain times when they sound the same. Now, I'd mentioned on the Babel conference that this was around the time that he did the D Space Nine theme. I understand it's a, you know, year and a half to two year difference between the score for uh, generations and when he composed the theme. But is that is within a period of, of work for Dennis McCarthy? You know, you go into the mid nineties or whatever with, uh, with James Horner, you know, beginning kind of with Patriot games and moving on into, uh, Braveheart and Titanic. And you've got this Scottish influence. In this Scottish feel that you get in a lot of his music, you know, and that 70s sound that you get out of Goldsmith, you know, you get things that kind of come in waves. They're like, hey, I like this new sound. I'm going to go with this for a little bit. And that's why people hire these composers is because they like their sound.
2: No, I definitely I, I don't think the score is as bad as some people think. I, I do think it, it punctuates the film rather well. The theme, every time I hear it, you know, the opening credits does make me think of Deep Space Nine, but I don't think it's a bad thing because I like the Deep Space Nine theme,
0: honestly. So um, right.
2: gentlemen, let's move well, he on. He uses a lot
0: of French horn, right? Yes. McCarthy definitely. uses a lot of French horn in his music. Totally does.
2: I love French horn too. Um, gents, let's move on to the central questions. Um, I'm going to skip around these a little bit because I, I probably have them in the wrong order on the outline, but, uh, bear with me. Um, was this movie a fitting end to captain James T Kirk and Dan, we'll start with you.
1: I really, uh, have to say, I don't think it was. Um, I understand that the, this was not the original way that Kirk was supposed to die in this movie. He was supposed to be shot in the back by Dr. Soren, uh, on the bridge, uh, between the two, um, uh, peaks, so to speak. So instead, the bridge falls on the captain. The man who was on the bridge his whole career dies by a bridge. So that's kind of quirky in that it happens like that. Um, I don't think it was a fitting end to, to that character at all. He did get to save, uh, a planet with millions of people on it, but mm, I just, I, I think it could have been done his death would have been better some other way i think.
0: brandon how about you? it's it's tough to say like i think a lot of people would prefer to have seen kirk never die. you know, like right. maybe just finish off gener- uh, star trek 6 and that's the last that we see of kirk and then he's one of those heroes that's just out there. we know that he dies everybody dies but kirk is one of those immortal beings that we just want to see forever. I mean, like, I, I love the novels, and I mean, if you were to try and fit canonically all of the novels that are out there, like, that could never happen any matter. It's like The Simpsons. You know, we're in 30-some <laughs> seasons of The Simpsons, and they're still in grade four, right? It's these these characters that just go on and on, and you just keep telling their stories. It doesn't matter if they fit or not. It's just, we love these characters so much that we never want to see them die. And I don't think that any death for Kirk would have satisfied anybody. Yeah. I, I, in my opinion. I don't
2: know that it really would have satisfied me. I would have liked to have seen it, you know, um, maybe on board a ship of some kind, um, you know, mm. m- maybe something a little more heroic than necessarily falling with a bridge down a, a Canyon. But go S- ahead, Dan.
1: So I was going to say, you know, the more I think about it, there's a great novel, um, which deals with McCoy and what we see him in TNG and then, and then in this novel, how he dies. And I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it's, it's something that's very, very special. He's not doing anything special. I kind of would like to see Kirk after all the things he's done, after all the sacrifices he's made, even though he doesn't like retirement, which we see when he's in the Nexus, have him sitting at home out on a porch with a blanket around his leg or something like that, just content and happy. That's the best way I think we could have seen if we were going to see that Captain Kirk see, passing all on. Can...
0: What, like the end of Godfather 3? I, I was just going to say <laughs> that.
2: I was just going to say that. All I can picture is Michael Corleone out in the garden at the end of Godfather 3 and he tips over off the
0: bench. Yeah, because that one went over so well. Yeah. Eh? People just loved that oh, movie. I know.
1: He's sorry, guys. <laughs>
2: well, and then, gentlemen...
0: Well, if he didn't die this way, though, then he, the Borg couldn't have brought him back in The Return. And then we wouldn't that, have got Avenger right, and the know. Mirror Universe, <laughs> Tiberius coming back in the novel. I
1: love talking to a fellow novel reader.
2: <laughs> oh, boy. Um, and lastly, gentlemen, we'll consider where this film fits in the pantheon of, of TNG films. Um, I'll go first since, uh, I've made it, you know, no secret of the fact that I think this is the, for me personally, this is the worst of the TNG movies. And I think that it's because it fails at its primary mission. You know, all of the other movies, including insurrection and nemesis, you know, tell a story and whether or not it tells a good story is up for debate. This one tells a couple of stories. It doesn't tell them well, and then it doesn't really serve as an effective baton passing, which is what this movie has always been billed at as. So for me personally, I, I think this is the worst of all the next-gen films simply because it's just, it, it's it's not told well and it's, it's just not written well. Um, I have a feeling you'll both disagree with me and that's fine. So uh, Brandon, we'll go with you, man.
0: You know what I hear when you say that? Yeah. Basically, you're telling me you hate America.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I love America. I even love Canada. Yeah, Canada. Hey, I know that place. That's where I'm from. Hey. Um, uh, for me, the movie works. I mean, this is my favorite TNG movie. Um, to me, my least favorite TNG movie is Insurrection. Um, I think that's a pretty painful movie myself, but, I, I think they were very successful at what they intended to do with passing the baton from one generation to another. I know that in hindsight, a lot of Next Generation fans would have been like, look, just give us our Next Generation movie and leave it at that. But I like what they tried to do. And as a baton passing, as a swan song, I think this works a heck of a lot better than These Are the Voyages. Fair enough.
1: Dan, (laughs) how about you, man? Well, I think in, um, sorry, I think Nemesis is by far the worst of the TNG movies. I just think it is just horrendous, and First Contact is the best. So then we have two and three, and for me, they can be interchanged. It's it's not really one is better than the other or one is worse than the other. They both have points that are strong and they both have points that aren't strong. And I have to say that I have a better appreciation for a lot of insurrection after watching it recently when we did a podcast episode on it. But then again, I watched Generations just this past weekend and there's some things that I have a greater appreciation for there too. So I would have to say it's right in the middle. It's not the worst. It's not the best. Um. and that, and before you say it bill it's not wishy-washy i
2: don't think that's wishy-washy <laughs> i mean you clearly can articulate you know why you think it's there and it's it's not like you're doing what you do and see it or skip it and just changing your mind so wow <laughs> <laughs> well gentlemen there's a lot to discuss with regard to this movie and perhaps we'll have to take up this subject again and um and maybe deep dive on it even more uh,
1: can I bring up one more question? Uh, sure.
2: If you make it quick.
1: Very, very quick. And I, mean, I wanted to point out one of these things, but it doesn't work for me. And that's Captain Harriman. And I'm, I'm not sure if you guys agree or disagree. I can't fathom how someone who seems to be so inexperienced, so wet behind the ears, has no idea what he's doing, has to, you know, is, is sitting there pacing, not having any clue, could be picked to be the captain of the flagship of the Federation Enterprise B. That did not work for me at all. Thoughts?
0: I would agree with that. I think it's, it's designed to show just how awesome Kirk and Scotty and, and, uh, Chekov are, you know, like it's designed to elevate their status in it. I agree. It's, it's pretty weak for that character to be so incompetent in his role. And that's the impression that you get again, novel fan, love what Peter David did with him in the novel universe. Right. Um, yes. you know, I think they did some great stuff with him to kind of redeem the character, but that stuff's not canon. And I, I think it's kind yeah. of weak sauce for that character.
2: Weak Sauce. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. Um, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us, man. It was great to have you here. Uh, Where can people find you online?
0: I I just wanted to say, it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Oh, my. You can find me on Twitter, at Brandon Metella. Uh, you can find me on Trek FM with new episodes of Melodic Treks. And I'm actually also the co-host of Warp 5, which is our dedicated enterprise podcast. Ah, uh, yes. So you can find me out there having some fun with the NX-01 and Chef. And uh yeah, so I guess that's probably the, the best place to find me.
2: Fantastic. And uh, Dan, nobody cares what, where we can find you because um, we find you all the time. So I'm everywhere. Oh, don't I know it. Gents, uh, thank you so much for the discussion. And um, uh, here's to uh, some more great Trek movie watching down the road. And Dan, before we depart, we probably should thank our friends in the band Five Year Mission. They are so great to us each and every week. They let us use their amazing songs for Trek geeks. And uh, we are so fortunate to be able to play their music.
1: Every week we like to play their music. And we can be playing up to 80 tracks of Five-Year Mission, as I was so corrected earlier this week by Mr. Park.
2: Yeah, You were corrected, and how, mister?
1: I, only because I was going by what you told me.
2: What do you mean what I told you?
1: Yeah, oh, every week, da, 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 79 episodes, blah, blah, blah.
2: <laughs> I, I said they were recording one episode for each or one song for every episode of the original series. That's not a, a false statement.
1: But how many episodes were there?
2: It depends on who you talk to. <laughs>
1: You know, I got to say that we love them. We, you know that. I know that. Everybody knows that. And we like to have fun with them. Um, but I did see a bad episode about them the other day. What? I did. It, it wasn't good. And it just happens to be season two of The Next Generation, which we just talked about recently. We did. You might remember it. Uh, f- was it actually – was was it the first season of – Next Generation, I stand corrected. Again, doesn't happen often.
2: It seems to be a trend.
1: I know. But uh, First Officer Riker of the USS Lollipop beamed down to planet Minos and confronted a holographic version of Captain Noah Butler of the USS Drake. Things got a little dicey on the surface of that planet that became wealthy by selling weapons. Bill, do you know the name of that episode?
2: Um, I'm sure you're about to tell me.
1: I think it was the Arsenal of Farkdom.
2: Huh. Farked him! I damn near killed him.
1: <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah, I probably should
2: edit that out. <laughs> nah, <laughs> now we'll leave it in. we
1: it. No. We love them. I, we can't wait for year four. I know that.
2: I'm very excited for year four. They just started recording I know. year four this week. I <laughs> Which means it's it's happening. I'm very
1: psyched. Yes, We're going to get
2: new Star Trek this year. We're going to get some new five-year mission this year. It's going to be a great, great 2017, Dan.
1: It is going to be. I don't even know what's higher on the list. The new Star Trek series or year four?
2: <sighs> um, I'm going to go with whichever one's going to come out first. And at this point, that's a dead heat. <laughs>
1: Big question mark, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it really is. Dan, we want everybody to head on out to fiveyearmission.net. Download all of their albums in preparation for year four. And uh, believe me, you will become as big a fan as Dan and I are. We guarantee it. Dan offers a money-back guarantee. No, he doesn't. He doesn't do anything of
1: the kind. <laughs> good good correction.
2: <laughs> You're welcome. And Dan, we also want to remind people that our iTunes subscribe and review campaign is continuing through the end of this month. And all they have to do is write a review for the Trek Geeks podcast, right?
1: Yeah, very easy. Just uh, write and submit your review and you will automatically be entered into a drawing where one random review will win a $25 Amazon gift card or the equivalent in US dollars in whatever country you are submitting the uh, review from uh, at Amazon's store of that country. That makes no sense, but it makes sense to those who know what I'm talking about. It makes um, sense to you. <laughs> that's right. Um, all you need to do is go to trekgeeks.com slash iTunes. And as always, we appreciate the comments both good or bad
2: we do we just we want to make a, the podcast better and we want uh, people to listen to it and we figure the best way to do that is with feedback from the people who listen so we want your honest comments uh we can take it <laughs> trust me we can you know i can handle hearing how bad dan is it's okay but uh that's trekgeeks.com slash itunes find out how you can score 25 bucks dan bill why don't you tell us what's coming up next
1: week Next week, we're, we're going to stir it up a little bit, a little something different in the pot, so to speak. Uh, I think we can all agree that Mary may be just one of the worst episodes of the original series or of Star Trek as a whole. I think that's safe to say. I, th- I know you think that. I think that. Um, but we decided we're going to have a little fun with Mary next week. So we're going to have a special supplemental episode. Bill and I are going to watch Mary. And we're going to have our own unique comments about the episode as it's playing. So next week, it is Trek Geeks Theater just for you guys.
2: You know, you and I, well, one, we've never done a commentary for an episode. Something right. we talked about a couple of years ago. Um, my wife made some very infamous comments that we'll mention next week. But um, we've also never watched the original series together in all the years we've known each other.
1: Right. The only time we've done it was last year when you had that great – or this year, I should say, in September when uh, you guys did the man trap. I was on vacation at the time. I jumped on board for about five minutes just to yeah. say hi to everybody. But uh, other than that, no, we've never done it. So uh, I guess there's a first time for everything. And uh, it should be interesting to see what comments you have. I think you like Mary just about as much as you like Generations.
2: Uh, that probably just a little less. Uh, <laughs> truth be told, I've got one comment I'm I'm saving. I'm not even gonna, I, I want to drop it right now, but uh, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't, I want it to be in the episode, so just don't uh, forget next it. week. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry. Uh, next week, Miri and Trek Geeks Theater, a commentary track. All on the Trek Geeks podcast. I'm very excited, Dan. For more great Star Trek discussion, of course, after people listen to Brandon's melodic treks on Trek FM, please check out the Tricorder Transmissions online at the TricorderTransmissions.com. And of course, Dan, for all the latest news on all things Star Trek, please visit our great new our great news. Uh, 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 please visit our great friends at TrekNews.net online at Trek news. .net. For now, this has been episode 96 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper.
1: They say coconuts are the fire in which we burn. Right now, gentlemen, my coconuts are running out. I
2: thought you were going to say your coconuts were burning, in which case, this is a totally different podcast.
1: <laughs> it's for everyone young and old.
2: Your Your coconuts? No, okay, sorry. Whoa! Oh, shift on me there, bunk bang. I see what you did.
1: They're a universe. <laughs> nah. Oh boy. The <laughs> troubles are not dangerous.
2: <laughs> Neither are you. You always, you always slip into Sierra Jones. I, I know.
1: I, it's it's either that or is uh, weird. as this going to sound? It's Ben the whale from Rudolph, shiny new year. <laughs> You ever seen that one?
2: No, no, never did.
1: <laughs> it's not great. It's one of those stop animation ones from back in the seventies. Rudolph is yeah. trying to rescue Baby New Year, who's been kidnapped by the giant monster bird Eon the Terrible. I'm and- sorry.
2: Wait, wait. <laughs> the giant monster bird Eon the Terrible. <laughs>
1: That's what he sounds like. That's what he does. He's very funny looking. He's he's Yeah, he's a big bird. And so Rudolph and his friends go searching on the island of lost whatever. I don't remember the name. The archipelago of last year's. And they're riding a whale. And his name is Ben. And on the back of his tail, he's got a big clock. So it's Big Ben. Get it? <laughs>
2: uh, is he from the island of misfit whales? What? what it's is
1: quite that? possible. But at one point, the whale and the bird – are nose to nose and the whale talks kind of funny and he goes nye, 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 you're a bad bird Eon. and it reminds me of Cyrano Jones okay your <laughs> are not dangerous Eon.
2: <laughs> that is the most random thing you've ever come up with
1: <laughs> aren't the outtakes just for random discussion
2: <laughs> Yeah, that is a fair statement alright so I'm watching Generations the other day to prepare mm-hmm. for for our podcast today and um it's the scene in 10 Forward where you know Picard goes to meet Soren. Yes. And that is uh, that is just such a great scene in that movie. And the reaction Patrick has to his line along with the music is is just beautiful. You know Soren goes, you know, time is the fire in which we burn. Yep. And I'm thinking to myself as Patrick gives that reaction it's like, well, for him time isn't really the only thing it just burned in a fire. <laughs>
1: God. Wow.
2: Too soon? Dude. Too soon? <laughs> it's been like twenty-three years. It's it's not too soon.
1: Oh, that is oh my. Mm-hmm. That we're gonna get some hate mail on that one. <laughs> speaking speaking of Patrick speaking of Stewart. Hate <laughs> <mail>. <laughs> speaking of Patrick Stewart. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta say. Uh took the fam to see Logan last night. Yeah. Oh. Oh, my God. Oh, my effing God, dude. It was amazing. Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman gave the performances of their careers in this movie, I thought. It was unreal.
2: So I was watching um, some of the video clips from Conan O'Brien today. Yeah. And apparently there's a scene where Logan has to take Charles to the bathroom. Yep. And I'm thinking to myself – that's a far cry from the the X Men. Yes, that's that's going to be the worst retirement plan ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, there is that scene, and and what's interesting is it's rated R. It's it's quite violent. Oh, I will say wow. it's not for kids. I had no idea. Yeah, it's not for kids. It is pretty violent. But um, I think you and I were just discussing it. Just to hear Patrick Stewart drop f bombs left and right as he does in this movie is worth the price of admission in itself. I could do an impersonation, but then you'll have to bleep it out, so it just won't make any sense. <laughs>
2: I, when that movie comes out, I'm going to rip the audio from it and string those together as a ringtone for my phone. <laughs> because what could be better than Sir Patrick dropping the F-bomb oh. six or seven consecutive times yeah. when I got a text message?
1: It was it was a great – Eric LaSalle, dude, is in this movie.
2: What? You mean Dr. Benton from ER?
1: Yeah, and uh, what's his name? The Soul Glow guy from Coming to America. <laughs> <laughs> The greatest love of all. Thank you. In shadow <laughs> of me. Such your chocolate. That is my Suck your chocolate.
2: That is my favorite scene in coming to America. That oh my is god. So
1: funny. Oh Randy Watson. <laughs> uh, right up here. Yeah. <laughs> That's so S- good.
2: Samuel L. Jackson's in that movie.
1: Yes, he is. He's Which the movie? robber at the McDowells.
2: Yeah. Yeah, most people forget about that. Yeah, he is. And um Louis Anderson? Was- yeah, Louie Anderson. That was one of Sam Jackson's first gigs, if I remember right.
1: Wow, that's a great movie! In the Face.
2: <laughs> and that movie is fantastic. John Amos, I love that guy yep. ever since Good Times. Yes, he is so great in that movie.
1: Yeah, he is good. That's a great. That's a great, it's one of Sue's favorites. Also, we love that movie. It's awesome.
2: <laughs> I <laughs> believe the children are future teach them, them, them. well and let them lead the way.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. It's awesome. <laughs> so uh, we've gone from, let me just make sure I get this right. We've gone from Rudolph's shiny new year to yep. Logan to coming to America. What else can we throw in here tonight? Well, we threw
2: in Star Trek Generations, Star actually. Trek if Generation. you call that. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> that just perfectly displays the randomness that is this podcast.
1: You know what else is random? No, your face? Your face. face. Yeah. Oh. Right.
2: <laughs> You left too long of an opening there, and I just I was gonna go after it.
1: you did you caught your face real good
2: whoa
1: uh, what uh, okay, just whatever
2: mm-hmm. all okay. right what are you drinking uh water actually
1: Ooh, you go, boy well, that's after the
2: uh the Atkin shake I had for dinner because <laughs> I got home late, and then um, my wife got home late, and by the uh, time the chicken came off the grill, it was time to record.
1: oh, okay, so the chicken's just kind of hanging out on the grill.
2: Um, no, she's, uh, I pulled the chicken off the grill and brought it in and my wife can have dinner.
1: Oh, what a nice guy.
2: I would do anything for my bride. I love
1: that's, her. That's true. I don't doubt that for a second.
2: I, you, I would not do anything for her. So but shut you're your up, face.
1: But you're sitting here recording with me, uh, on a, on an evening and, uh, you could be eating chicken with your bride. So I got to take that into consideration and thank you for it.
2: Damn it. <laughs> wow. You're right. I hate admitting you're right. hate Uh-oh. it.
1: It doesn't happen often, so you know it's not something. It's not a bad feeling that you have to have. To have, blah, 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 blah. have to have too often. The
2: last time you, know, I I hope you was... don't
1: screw up in any type of the of the podcast tonight when you're doing any of your speech because that would be uh, funny if you did. Now,
2: now you've hosed me. I am so screwed. <laughs> yeah, I think the last time I admitted you were right was probably in 1998.
1: After you dropped my enterprise? No, that was in '96. <laughs> I think, you know what? I might have to suspend Farkisms for a while and just every week talk about that day. What it's would you a, rather have?
2: Oh, my God. That's that's like asking me if I want cake or death, The, the like the Eddie Izzard bit. <laughs> I, um, I I want the cake, so I guess I'll go with the Farkisms. <laughs> All right. Lord knows I've heard those a lot less than I've heard. You dropped my enterprise <laughs> for the last 20 <laughs> damn years. <laughs>
1: I brought it to work um, to display because I brought some of the other things that I had home to put in the podcast recording studio when we get it finished. So I brought that one to work. And, and our good friend, Ben, who was a listener and now was also an a employee uh, at the company I work at. Oh, I showed him. I told him all about it. I picked him up. I showed it. I turned it over. I showed the battle damage. It was a fine afternoon.
2: Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Yeah, that's... Hope you enjoyed that, Ben.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You ready to do this?
2: Uh, I don't know if I'll ever be ready, but let's do it anyway.
1: All
0: right.